Well, welcome to Lakeside Christian Church this morning. Uh, we're glad that you're here. I um, was wondering how many people would come, but then I thought, if you haven't figured out how to drive in the snow yet, um, then Northeast Ohio might not be the, the, the ideal place for you. And some of you are saying, I know how to, and it's still not the ideal place. I'd rather just not to, even though I know how to. But we're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, we're finishing up a four-part series called God's Story, The Drama of Redemption. And today the theme is restoration. And I kind of like to frame it this way for you. If uh, some producer from a, a station were to come to you and say, we want to make a series, a film series on your life. They wanted to record it and show it to the world. What genre would it be? Would it be a science fiction story? Would it be a drama? If they made one of mine, I hope it would be labeled as a comedy. And here's what I mean by comedy. In ancient Greek theater, there was really two main stories that were told, tragedies or comedies. So that when you see a picture of ancient theater, there's the two masks and one has a smiley face and one has a frowny face. A comedy or a tragedy. Well, the way you know which story you're listening to or which play is being presented to you is, depends on how it ends. A tragedy starts with a lot of promise and a lot of potential, but it ends in despair. And a comedy starts with limited options, with discouragement and despair, but it ends in hope. It ends with possibility and new horizons. And so a character in a tragedy will seem to have the whole world in front of them, all the options you could ever ask for, and then as the story continues to unfold, by circumstance and situation, they just kind of get trapped into this now only one option by the end that's before them and that isn't good. Whereas in a comedy, someone starts, and maybe depending on where they're born and what situation it is, they seem to have very, very little options. And by the end, they're either the queen or the king of the country, and the whole world is before them. So in that vein, I hope the story of my life is a comedy. And actually, I think that for every Christian, that is what the Bible says to you and to me is possible. That our stories, if we think about them in terms of the ending, truly do end in such a way that when everything is said and we look back on all the details and all the ups and downs, the ending really can change everything and how we view and understand and interpret every experience that we ever had. And this is a theme all throughout the Bible. To know what story is being told by your life and my life, we have to think about it in terms of how it's going to end. So the first place we're going to go is Job 42. If you have a Bible, open it to the Old Testament book of Job, chapter 42. <clears throat> the story of Job... Excuse me. Okay. The story of Job, you might be familiar with it, but many of us who are even familiar with it are familiar with how it begins. That there's this man in the Old Testament. It's hard for us to figure out where we would place him because there's no other reference point in the book to kind of give us a sense of when it happened in relation to other people in the Old Testament. 
But he's, he's doing his thing, and by all accounts, we can tell he's doing it rather well. And he has a growing family, and he has growing property and business, and he's doing right by the responsibilities that are in front of him. And then just about everything that could go wrong goes wrong in his life. And he loses his family, and he loses his property, and he loses his wealth, and the majority of the book is him just trying to process why that's happened. What kind of a world do we live in that someone who is otherwise just trying to do the best job they can can experience so much pain, so much loss, and despair? And you get lost in reading it because what he has is three friends come alongside him and there's this conversation happening between his three friends and him just trying to process and figure out what kind of a world this is, what kind of a story Job is inhabiting. And by all circumstances, when we think about Job, we think about his suffering. And so we would quickly label it as a tragedy. Here's the guy who had everything, and then he lost it all. It started good, but it ended bad. Except that that's not actually how the book of Job ends. It ends in chapter 42, and we're going to read most of it. If you follow along, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And then it lists off all the ways in which he was blessed in verse 16. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. One of the takeaways of this book is that it is possible in the way in which God is telling his story that there can be an ending that changes everything. 
There can be an ending to the story that changes everything about the details within it. And this was true of Job, that when we get to the end of the book, we don't actually have a lot of answers as to why he had to go through what he had to go through. And if, in fact, he did anything wrong or in which way his friends were helpful or harmful, we get this general rebuke that they weren't very helpful friends. God says, I'm upset at you because you gave him bad counsel in his suffering. But when we read through it, we don't come to some grand conclusion about why it all happened. But the point that is made at the end that Job himself realizes, and he says in verse 2, is that God can do all things and that whatever we face and whatever trials come and whatever tragedies we experience cannot thwart his ultimate purposes. And then that God is able to restore the fortunes of anything that you and I would lose and he can do it in ways that you and I could never imagine. And so in the language of the New Testament in Ephesians chapter three, Paul says that God can do abundantly far more above and beyond anything that we could even ask or think to ask. That's good news. God can do more for us than we could have imagined to pray for him to do. He can restore fortunes twice fold. He can make the end of our days better than the beginning of our days. There is an ending that can change the way we think about everything. Now we'll go backwards in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here we're coming to another story that is a tragedy in one sense. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, This is on page 263. Just to catch you up to speed, we're coming into the life of David, who is now the king of Israel. And David was someone who grew up in a family that didn't initially seem to have much prospects, and even if it did, he was the youngest of all his siblings, so anything the good that happened was probably going to happen to his oldest brother and not to him, but here... In amazement, God works it out so that he, the youngest of all the siblings, becomes the king of the nation. And so we think, wow, great things are happening for him. And unfortunately, David, as king, does not remain faithful to all the things that God would have him to do. And he eventually uses the authority that he acquires and the power that he has, and he uses it for all the wrong reasons. And instead of being content in the marriage that he had, he pursues another woman who was already married to one of his soldiers who is fighting in battle for him. So David just makes about as big of a mess of being a king as anybody could. And eventually it comes to the point in verse 15 of chapter 12 where now a child that's been born to him was sick at birth. And he extends this time of fasting, hoping and praying that this child will live. This is where we pick it up in verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. 
And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked that they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child when he's alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And that's where we'll stop. So here is David experiencing what the New Testament describes as the sting of death. He has a child who is sick. The child, innocent, young enough to not have done anything yet. David knows he's guilty. He just acknowledged his guilt a few verses earlier in chapter 12. He knows that he's the one who's made the wrong choices. He's the one who's abused his power. And so for seven days, he just pours out his heart before God, longing that this child would live. And at the very end, it's because he knows something about death. He says, can I bring him back again? That's the sting of death. That someone that we could hold, that someone that we used to talk to, that someone that we knew, we, we lose that ability to do that. And so he's experiencing that. And then... And that is all completely natural, completely human. We can understand why he would be so overcome with emotion that not even his servants could pick him up off the ground. And therefore, they were so concerned about his health that they didn't even want to share the news with him because they thought he might harm himself. It's just completely natural, totally human response to the reality that death brings into our world. The response that doesn't make sense in this chapter is that he goes to the house of the Lord and he worships afterwards. And it doesn't make sense to his servants. They look at it and they're just, sorry, Dave, what, what's going on? How, how can you, when this is the end, this is how it ended, you're not going and worshiping because your son was healed. You're not going and worshiping because your prayers were answered in the way you thought. They weren't answered the way you thought. Your fasting didn't result in this. 
And part of what David acknowledges, not to the full extent that we would understand it, even in the New Testament, but he knows and believes enough about God that there is something in his heart that says, even in this, I don't think this is the end. I don't think this is the end. And in that last phrase, in verse 23, he says, now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Which is an indication mainly that in David's mind, he's saying, I'm going to die one day too. But I think there's something significant to the fact that David does not just say, I'm going to go to the place where he went, i.e., he's dead and I will one day die. But that I will go to him. That I believe this isn't the end even for him. I don't know what it is, but there's something inside of me that believes that there is more than what we just experience here and now. And so in this sense, there's also an ending that is only the beginning. So we can understand from Job that there's an ending that changes everything. And as we see David's ability to gather into the house of the Lord to worship, and then eventually to pen Psalm 51, that David believes that there is also a way in which an ending in one sense can actually be the beginning of something else. And so when you read Psalm 51 and you realize he writes it basically right after these moments, and one of his prayers is, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew within me a a, a new spirit. Help me live in such a way with restored joy and with restored vigor because I don't believe that this is the end of everything. This end can be a beginning of something else, a reality that even in David's mind is very fuzzy. But here's the thing. As believers in the New Testament, when we read through this passage and we say, you know what, it's true. We can understand his grief. David's son could not come back to him from the dead. God's son could. And this is the distinctive truth of the Christian message. David's son could not come back from the dead. But God's son could and did. And so that when we read the verse, that it happened on, in verse 18, that it was on the seventh day that the child died. As a Christian, we read it and we say, but I know about a seventh day when a child arose. I know about a seventh day. And so I worship on the seventh day when God's son who died rose again. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And here Paul describes for us what is the singular, unique message of Christianity compared to any other understanding of God or history or telling of the story that is our universe. We'll begin in verse three. This is on page 961. 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This is an amazing verse. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is expected who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And now skip to the next page to verse 50. <clears throat> I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus 
Christ. And we'll stop there. Here Paul describes for us not only an ending that changes everything, not only an ending that is just a beginning, but an ending that defeats every enemy. He says that Christ is now putting all the enemies of God's creation and God's people in subjection such that they will one day be eliminated so that the world will be a place where there is no more pain, where there is no more death, where there is no more sorrow, where we can in fact say that one day death will die. How can we say that? How can we believe that that's going to be how it ends? That there's going to be that kind of an ending that defeats every enemy? Well, that's where the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 comes into play. He says, we know that about ourselves because we see that when we look at Jesus. He was someone who died at no fault of his own because of no sin that he had done. And he died for our sins. He died as a substitute for us. Last week's message, redemption. He redeemed us. But we can believe in redeeming us He is now working to restore us and the world that he made that was good from the beginning. And he's going to restore those things and we can know it and we can believe it because we saw it in him. And so he says, Jesus rose from the dead. He showed himself to his disciples. He showed himself to many people. He showed himself to Paul. And then he sent his disciples out with this message. Tell the world that there is an alternative ending, that what seems to them like a tragedy can actually become a comedy. There can be an ending in which all of the enemies are defeated, in which only good and beautiful things begin, and that changes the way that we live and think about life. And so this is why we gather on Sundays. This is the, the first day of the week when our Savior rose again, defeating death, defeating the enemies of our world that bring us down, that cause us to despair, that cause us to feel like we're stuck in a play that's a bad story and we're not sure how it's gonna end. When we remember what Christ did and we remember his victory that he rose again, then we have confidence, then we have joy, then we have hope, then we have something that only Christianity can offer. And so amazing, in verse 19 he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. So it's Paul himself who's saying that this is the central claim of our faith. This is the big idea. If you just want to learn how to be more disciplined in your life and and accomplish things faster, you don't need Christianity to do that. If you just need to learn how to handle and cope with stress, you can go do yoga throughout the week. That'll help you cope with stress a little bit better. If you want to just learn how to have a good family and raise your kids in a moral way, sure, Christianity is an option, but so is Judaism, so is Islam. They know how to keep discipline and order in a home and how to raise people that have moral character. But only Christianity can say to the world that there is life after the grave found in Christ in a restored creation, back to perfection, the way that God originally made it. Why? Because the Son of God who came and who died rose again. 
so that the hope that we have is not in this life only and the restoration that's possible for us is not in this life only. So it's not just that Job was restored at the end of his life, it's that even the child who died, David's son, there's restoration possible for a child and there's restoration possible for every sinner in the world. And so this is the message that you can take to the slums of India or any business that you walk into or any person that you meet in any society and say, this is a story that you can engage. Your life, whatever its circumstances are, can end with this kind of hope, this kind of victory, because Jesus, in his resurrection, in verse 23, that was just the first fruits. When he comes again, then it says, for all those who belong to him, he will restore them in perfection and eliminate every enemy that has ever come against the people of God and he will take out the sting of death by ending death itself. This is an ending that inspires singing and serving. We stopped right before we read the last verse of chapter 15 but if you look at it in verse 58 he says, therefore, in light of this, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you believe that there is this ending, this promised restoration to all who are in Christ, that's an ending that inspires you to be immovable, steadfast. That's something worth singing about. And then that's something that motivates us to service and to sacrifice, to take risks in this life because we don't believe that this life is all there is. And that's the good news of the gospel. And that's what inspires some of the best songs that we sing. That's a good test for any theology that someone's presenting to you. Is it singable? Does it inspire me? I heard one author who I like describe, as we started this series, describing the Big Bang, and he said, it just makes for a bad story. It was hydrogen, was walking, and it tripped. And all of a sudden, here's a world. It doesn't inspire you. It doesn't make you want to sing a song. But when you can really say, there is coming a day when no heartaches shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye, all will be peace, forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day. Glorious day that will be. I mean, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I get to look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day glorious day that will be there'll be no sorrow there no more burdens to bear no more sickness no pain no more parting over there and forever I will be with the one who died for me what a day glorious day that will be I mean what a day that will be When my Jesus, I shall see, and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, 
And he takes me by the hand and he leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. In the words of another more modern hymn by the Gettys, that death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. Amen? Death is dead. Love has won. And Christ has conquered. Or as we're about to sing now, there's a peace that I've come to know. Though my heart and flesh may fail, and there's an anchor for my soul, and I can say, it is well, because Jesus has overcome. The grave is overwhelmed. And because he rose, we can sing that one day we will rise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for writing a story that includes us and our experiences and our struggles and creates possibilities that we could never fathom or understand. that when we're faced with the hardest challenges that life could bring and the worst of news that we could hear, that we can enter into the house of the Lord and remember that what is impossible for us is possible for you. Father, we thank you that you have given us a message, a gospel, good news that's worth sharing, that's worth singing about, that's worth celebrating that in your victory, we can be victorious. In your conquering, we can conquer. In your life and in your power, we can live forever. And that no matter where we are, the ending can be better than the beginning. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.